and hello. This is Luke Hunt for The Diplomat and another podcast. With me is Keith Lovard, a journalist with immense experience across Southeast Asia. He began his career in Sydney, Australia, and has spent many a decade, in fact five of them, working across the world and in particular Indonesia. Keith, we're coming in at the uh, tail end of the election results in Indonesia. Perhaps we should start there before we wind back a bit further about your magnificent career. How have you seen the elections? How do you think they've stacked up? In particular, uh, we had the riots in uh, Jakarta last week, which uh, almost seemed to follow a template. Yes, indeed. um, And it's remarkable in Indonesia and I think in other countries in the region where you have elites who are prepared to manipulate people, simple people, to go out and get themselves killed for the uh, material and political games of of these elite players. Um, As you say, this was almost a template that that looks, as it emerges, it looks almost identical to the 98 uh, uh, killing of students, which then fomented rioting, which then led to the downfall of of the, uh, the president of the day, Suharto. And all the uh, the reports that are coming out suggest that what happened last week is almost exactly the same as that. And of course, uh, the election saw uh, President Joko Widodo returned as president. His nemesis Prabowo was again defeated. How do you think Prabowo's political career will shape up in the rela- in the wake of uh, the latest? Uh, riots probably a little bit too strong, but certainly the protests were nasty. They deserve to disappear, quite frankly. Uh, he's had two goes at becoming president. He's been voted out on, on two occasions. Uh, on the first occasion, he, he reluctantly accepted that. On, on the second occasion, he has yet to do so, but the numbers certainly are against him. If he and his team are going to prove this massive and structural and organised corruption and and, uh, fraud in the elections, they're going to need to prove that it influenced 16 million votes. And that's a a very large number to turn around. Um, And in fact, from the monitoring that we do of, of what happened during the campaign period, the people who were committing abuses were uh, his own members of his own party, Gurindra. It, it has to be said, mind you, that uh, Widodo himself, I think, is guilty of using uh, the, uh, the, the, the the benefits of incumbency, uh, in, for instance, in granting pay rises to an awful lot of groups of people like honorary teachers and so on, uh, in what was clearly a very... Uh, um, very self-motivated move to 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 spend spread money out into the electorate for his own benefit. Right, but politicians of all flavours in all countries tend to do that. Uh, I'm not saying that it's necessarily acceptable behaviour, but there's a big leap between that and what Prabowo has been up to, and also Prabowo does have a nasty track record when it comes to human rights, which has been well documented going all the way back to 1998. And surely Indonesians would be mindful of that when it came to uh, casting their ballots. Yes, but this brings us back to the the, the first thing that we discussed, is, is the, the willingness of the elite 
to use ordinary people and to manipulate ordinary people to, to get their ends. And this is what you can argue that Prabowo did in 98, and he's still there, okay? He, he had to take refuge out of the country for a year or two, but then was allowed back in. No one has ever asked him seriously about what he did in 98. Nobody has asked him about all sorts of things that happened before that in East Timor, for instance. Uh, there is this incredible sense of impunity amongst some of these people. Uh, on, on the government side, on Widodo's side, you also have generals, for instance, Wiranto, with, with, with questions to answer, uh, who are uh, not generally welcome in places like the, Ameri like the United States of America because of their, their dubious track record. And yet within Indonesia, these people are still given enormous respect and allowed to keep on playing the same old games. And of course, you, you have followed this. In fact, you're considered one of the great insiders on Indonesian politics. You helped establish Concord Consulting, which is a security risk analytical firm where you've put together uh, daily newsletters on what's happening inside politics and around the country for 14, 15 years. And your insights have been widely quoted by journalists around the world for uh, for a long time now. How do you see Wadodo's second term shaping up? Uh, that is a, an interesting question. There are claims by some people that he got a resounding mandate. Uh, I tend to be a little bit more conservative. I'm not entirely sure that he did get much of a mandate. He only actually made 2.5% more in votes than he, than he got in 2014. So there's a very large gulf of people and in, in some specific geographical areas, particularly in Sumatra, that aren't particularly fond of him. Uh, now, whether or not he can spin uh, the results of the election into, into what's seen as a strong mandate to continue remains to be seen. One of the problems he will face is the continuing stonewalling of the bureaucracy who, who do not like the changes that he's brought in uh, on transparency and so on. Uh, they prefer a system which has been in place for years where they can slow things down and, and get out the off, off the books payments uh, to make their lives uh, rosier. But uh, this is a, a work in progress. He has done a lot, but whether or not he he is actually slowed down in his second term because people see him as a lame duck or whether he is able to achieve more, only time will tell. Right, and on a broader Asian uh, perspective, Indonesia is actually looking quite good in comparison to other countries. The elections in Thailand, as described by The Economist, was uh, inept rigging. Cambodia has been returned to a one-party state. Brunei has Sharia law. Duterte in the Philippines has uh, hardly respected the separation of powers, that cornerstone of any democracy. And uh, around the region, uh, it's been a long time since things have looked this bad. How do you see Indonesia shaping up within the broader ASEAN framework? And how do you see these other countries in ASEAN shaping up in the future as well? It doesn't look that rosy. No, and, and Indonesia, it's all relative, of course. Um, 
but it's not entirely pretty that, that in the last few years there has been a rollback in the degree of civil freedoms that people have been able to enjoy. Uh, there's been a crackdown, for instance, in particular on the LGBT uh, community. Uh, there have, have once again been these allegations of a, a of a restoration of the movement of the Indonesian Communist Party, which is simply laughable. Uh, so you've had these autocratic trends here, uh, which in many ways uh, flow in. A, there's a, a current flowing in a completely different uh, direction than the overall democratic process. And on that democratic process, people, it's certainly true that Indonesians like to be able to choose their leaders. Um, but if you look at the legislative elections, for instance, the quality of the people that they elect is very poor. So there's not much of an example here to say that democracy is good for you. Uh, certainly it's better than the rest, but it's still not particularly good. Are there any alternatives? Well, there are always alternatives. They're not particularly rosy ones, but uh, you know, you come back to the question of the old benign dictatorship, but where do you find your benign dictator? Throughout the election campaign, Islam and its influence has been often talked about. People have expressed a lot of concern about Islam and in particular the hardliners. But the way I've viewed it, particularly when compared with 20 years ago and people were looking at the balkanisation of Indonesia and then we had Jemeriz Lamia, the Bali bombings, the ties between uh, J.I. and Al-Qaeda, uh, the whole war on terror in Southeast Asia, it was really quite nasty. The Islamic influence at the moment, I think, I think it's undoubtedly getting stronger in many ways, but I'm under the impression it's more moderate than what some people are arguing. How do you see it? Is it is it a th- is it a threat? How can it be a threat when an entire uh, when much of this country is about Islam? But obviously, it's um, there's more to it than that. It it is a threat, and uh, Concord, for instance, we've been saying for for the last decade or more that this is actually the biggest long-term threat to Indonesia, that it turns into something like Iran, where you have the, the rule of the mullah. Um, but the, the, the recent election and the, uh, the tactic of the hardliners in piggybacking on Prabowo, Prabowo himself, of course, is, is not by any means a, a particularly good example of a good Muslim, but he was seen as useful by the hardliners. And the failure of this experiment is one of a succession of failures of this whole process, which gives one some some hope for the future of a more moderate and tolerant uh, Indonesian Islam. Um, ever since independence, uh, the, the, there have been attempts to declare Indonesia a, a Muslim state and, and to uh, declare Islam as the national religion. And they have, everyone has failed. Uh, no election has ever seen more than around 30% of the vote go to Islamic-based parties. Um, and if you look at the, the political parties that won in the recent elections, uh, most of those Islamic parties, and particularly the hardline, hardline ones, were wiped off the map. Uh, so there, there is certainly hope, 
that that something is happening here that the traditional moderate Indonesian Islam is resistant to this sort of push from the Wahhabi Salafist community. I would also have to add here that there are very positive moves uh, being conducted uh, by Nadlutau Lama uh, in promoting what they refer to as humanitarian Islam or Islam of the Nusantara of the archipelago, which, which recognises that Islam has always been uh, coloured by the nations in which it has taken place. And the argument that the proponents of Islam Nusantara are putting is that there are uh, passages of the Quran and the Hadith which require changing uh, the, the, the passages which talk about beheading of people and the, and the murder of apostates and so on. And they're saying that this needs to be changed, that needs to be acknowledged by Western governments. And they point particularly to the Barack Obama administration in America for, for eight years of having cautiously avoided any attack on Islam. And these people from within Indonesian Islam are actually saying, no, you're wrong. It is Islam that is the problem. To get this argument across is going to be very difficult. It relates to the changing of, of uh, Islamic juris, jurisprudence, which has never been easy to achieve, if ever. If ever. Um, I don't think it's ever had any much, very much success. But certainly the consciousness of Western governments is, is waking up to the fact that they have to be a little bit more aware of what is going on in, in Islam. And, and in this context, I think Indonesian Islam, as, as we knew it and as we um, respect it for its moderation and toleration, is doing some very positive work. And, of course, on the militancy front, it appears we could be heading into a new era for many years, uh, security analysts, people on the inside of security agencies, and, I, and I'm sure Concord Consulting as well, have been warning about what happens after the war in Syria, after the foreign jihadists have either been annihilated or return home and what they get up to then. This was, of course, followed up by the bombings in Sri Lanka a few weeks ago, which bore all of this out. And the concerns that people had of the possible threats seems now to be very real. Indeed, you're right, and, and it is a very great threat. And, and one of the realities of the Indonesian situation is if you accept the uh, the 2002 bombings, that, that most incidents in Indonesia have been remarkably inept. Uh, the, uh, the bombings last year in Surabaya were, were perhaps the... Uh, the most effective, but but still produce casualties in 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 the, the low double figures, very low double figures. So they are not doing an awful lot of, of, of actions which could produce very very major casualties. Um, for instance, if you just happen to have a, an automatic or a semi-automatic rifle, you could do an awful lot of damage. Um, and we, uh, at Concord, have been looking at, at websites since 2005, which specifically told you how to attack Westerners in, in the embassy area of central Jakarta. Now, they haven't done that up until now. Now, the danger is, of course, is that 
that with the end of uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria, that those people come back here battle-hardened in much the same way as the, the battle-hardened veterans of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan came back here and, and influenced Jamai Islamia, um, and that they will raise the problem of terrorism here once again. It's difficult to find at this point, having seen two or three of these eras come and go, in that when the Bali bombings happened in October 2002, it was very much, who did this? Why did they do this? And everybody is racking their brains and trying to figure it out. And we found out, and uh, that is the journalists, the analysts, the intelligence groups, the governments, everybody concerned. And now we seem to be back there almost in that kind of post 9-11 sort of a world where everyone's like, wow, what could happen next? Can you put a framework on how things are going to evolve. Well, that's a little... I'm probably asking you to be a little too fortuitous, but it's... Um, do you, who are we looking at? Do we know are groups being formed or is this still very... Or, or are we more concerned about individuals trying to give rise to groups that, came, uh, that we've seen in the past? I think one of the major dangers that we have at the moment is that, that far too much effort is being spent on... Uh, tracking down suspects and eliminating suspects in one way or another, and far too little is being done to empower communities uh, that produce this sort of individual. Now, there was a report just last week um, on an awful lot of frustration in Marawi, in the Philippines, in the southern Philippines, at the failure of of any authority to, to assist with the uh, the rebuilding of, of communities and the rebuilding of people's lives. And the, exactly the same story is coming out of, out of uh, the former ISIS terror, territory in places like Mosul and, and Raqqa, is that millions of dollars were spent on, on crushing these movements and destroying the, the physical location of, of, of ISIS. But virtually nothing has been done to help these communities to, to recover. Um, you also have the situation where you have 70,000 people um, who fled from Baguz um, in, in March uh, who are not being treated pro- properly. They're, none of the Western countries uh, are acknowledging that they have any responsibility to the, to these people, including their own citizens. And, and this is something which sets the seeds for further resentments, for further hatreds. It sets the seed for an awful lot of resentment and hatred within Sunni communities in the Middle East, um, and certainly also within radical groups within, in Europe. Um, and this, this is my concern, is that we are looking at a generational problem here. Um, which governments typically are too short-sighted to be able to come to terms with. I do remember when I was uh, working and living with the Taliban in Afghanistan in the 1990s, how Afghans were complaining quite loudly that the Americans had spent a lot of money backing the Muj in order to... uh, rid Afghanistan of the Russians and the Soviets. Once they were gone, 
Not a cent was spent on rehabilitating the country and this is what gave rise to the Taliban and of course Osama bin Laden who was active in Afghanistan from 1996 and then gave us the World Trade Center bombings. J.I. was... Exactly, and J.I. was essentially, a, or you could argue, an Al-Qaeda dynasty. Certainly a splinter group and uh, then that leads into the Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines as well, who are, my opinion, are nothing more than a bunch of thugs. However, what, what you're saying uh, seems to be history repeating itself, but not even over a longer term. We're seeing this repeating itself uh, three or four different little eras over just a couple of decades. Well, the other thing that is happening is that you are having a, a geographical spread, and it's certainly not only in this direction. It's also, of course, towards the Sahel in North Africa, um, places places like uh, Chad and Mali and so on. Uh, that, in fact, the, the sub-Saharan Africa is probably the uh, most alarming uh, area of development of, of jihadist uh, belief. And, and, of course, that directly affects Europe. It directly affects Europe through through refugees and migrants and so on moving north across the desert and through North Africa and places like Libya, which continue to be in an enormous mess. Bringing it back to uh, Indonesia and its place within Southeast Asia, the recent elections, we've had the elections in Thailand and and in Cambodia, and we've seen what's happened around, uh, across ASEAN. Indonesia has always been the powerhouse of ASEAN. It's uh, whether it wants to be there or not, I'm never too sure. However, it's... Uh, the rest of Southeast Asia can't live without it. Uh, how do you see its role uh, shaping up over the next few years? Uh, that foreign foreign relations is one of the perhaps the, the short fallings of the the Widodo first administration. He's got a reasonably com- competent uh, foreign minister there in Retno Masudi, um, and at the moment, of course, they're they're in the UN Security Council as, as a non permanent member, so they are raising issues there which are of interest to the global community, not least Palestine. Uh, Within ASEAN, ASEAN itself has always been one of the problems here. Uh, The number of years that I've been looking at ASEAN where you sort of think, well, okay, this organisation has great potential, but when is it ever going to achieve it? And of course, one of the reasons why it fails to do that is because it always moves at the pace of its slowest member. Um, now, they have made some progress, um, but if you look at, for instance, the relationship with China, uh, it, that has become very difficult because of the position that Cambodia has taken on this, uh, that it, Cambodia has become very ch- pro-Chinese, and, and with one member out of the ten that refuses to go along with the the, the the party line, as it were, it becomes very difficult to make decisions. So Indonesia, okay, it will, it will certainly remain the, the major player in ASEAN, uh, as you say, because it, it is, after all, by far the biggest economy in ASEAN. Um, but the results are likely to be limited. Uh, Indonesia will, will probably do what it can on the global front um, but Joko Widodo himself is much more interested in investment um, and what what Indonesia looks like as, as a destination for investors than he, than he does uh, as a political player on, on the geopolitical front, unlike his predecessor, of course, Yudhiyono, 
who very much had his sights set on on the uh, uh, the bigger picture of the statesman Mike Rawl. No, no, Jokowi doesn't have that. In terms of ASEAN and in terms of Islamic militancy and the history of good elections and dreadful elections of Southeast Asia, much of the uh, information, the analysis and how people form their opinions has come from journalists. In fact, I'm often amazed by how many security people have said to me behind the scenes that if it wasn't for journalists, we simply wouldn't know. Now, the the industry has changed enormously over the last couple of decades, and I think you've been in the business since the 1960s. How have you seen the industry change, and how is it shaping up for that information flow, particularly in regards to the bigger issues that really matter, like Islamic militancy, the way the elections are covered, what is happening, say, with Cambodia and China and how that is acting as a, a millstone for the rest of the region. The industry itself, it's, uh, it's a different time. It, it's totally different. And Concord Consulting, I have to, have to say, is one of the, uh, the phenomena that has come out of the change that we've seen. Um, the trouble these days is that, that doing good news is very difficult to sell. Now, we find that there is an audience there for good or, or news, good news in the sense of being objective and, and well-researched news, and there is a market for it, but it's a very specific market. And it is, uh, these days, fashionable, of course, to refer to it not as news, but as open source intelligence, which is exactly what we do. We monitor what is going on uh, across probably more than well over 200 publications in, in, in Indonesia, and we translate that into Western news language, and we then uh, provide analysis where appropriate on what that means. Now, the audience we have for that is the security offices of, of major multinational corporations uh, an increasing number of Indonesian firms and uh, a number of, quite a number, a growing number, in fact, of, of embassies. Um, I won't many, mention any names there, but the fact that we do go right across the board of what is happening, and what, I, what I'd like to say is that we, we cover everything but sport and celebrities, and even sport we do occasionally when we have soccer riots, for instance. So we, we look at all of these things so that when a, uh, a foreign ministry somewhere in the world says, oh, what's going on in the Indonesia in this subject, they, they know we've got that covered. Now, as I say, this is a niche audience um, which is prepared to pay for this, which, which keeps, in, in our case, about 15 people in, in, in you know, reasonable lifestyles. Um, the problem with the industry as a whole is how do you translate that in, into a mass market? And we have not been able to see a way to do that. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine uh, got in touch with me yesterday. He says, I'm getting bored with the, the old usual newspaper. Where can I get good information on this country? And I said, well, you could always come and buy it from us, but you probably can't afford it as an individual. This is one of the enormous changes because a lot of the stories you're talking about would have made the uh, broadsheets and international news wires once upon a time. Two examples of the last few weeks. One is that uh, a Chinese rocket that was carrying a satellite recently came down over southern Laos, right on the Cambodian border. 
it went completely unreported, although it did turn up in uh, online news services that are linked to NASA or within the industry. But there was a time when if a rocket crashed out of the sky, raining down on top of people, a newspaper would pick up on it. Another story that comes to mind is that there's a refugee boat currently missing uh, that was sailing from India to New Zealand, 200 souls on board. It was covered uh, by the Indian newspapers, but there was a time when international wires would have picked up on that story. It would have gone around the world, been picked up in local newspapers and carried on from there. But these stories are being completely ignored. Well, as you know yourself, the audience, we're not quite sure whether this is a chicken or an egg problem, is that the the audience doesn't seem to care anymore and uh, certainly the proprietors don't have the money to spend on, on getting people out to do this. Uh, there are still wire services, of course, which, which do this uh, sort of reporting, but, but the uh, demand is, is uh, very much limited. That one, one of the things that amazes me these days is that you will open a story on the internet and it will tell you, you know, three-minute read or five-minute read, and I'm thinking, good God, I mean, if people become so concerned about how much time they spend getting information that they have to be that they have to budget their minutes ahead of time to pick up information. Uh, th- this is ridiculous. Now, admittedly, to to have a, a good spread, a, a good understanding of everything that's going on in the world, it is, does take time, and a lot of people don't have the time, which is why people like us exist. But it was also why good newspapers existed and good magazines existed, and, and th- they've gone, and they will not come back. I think you're right. I don't think they will come back, although I do think the internet digital era has still got some way to go in terms of uh, reinventing the wheel and how people process their information. I don't think smartphones have helped. It's given access to information in extraordinary remote places that does help people to make up their own mind, be informed, but it's, it's all about headlines and not much else, maybe one or two paragraphs. There are exceptions to that rule, of course, and I think a lot to do with it is making it accessible and making it affordable. Uh, not everybody can afford to, to spend, you know, what's, what's a subscription to The Economist these days, $260 or somewhere around there. But if, for instance, uh, like The Guardian, you have this uh, make a donation approach, which, which has worked for them. Uh, the New York Times is now, what, a dollar a month to read The New York Times. And I, I fill my life with, with affordable uh, services like this. Um, so there is, there has to be, yeah, it's a matter of, of continuing experimentation of people working out creative ways to tell stories. And, and I think most of these uh, publications that I've mentioned are doing that, including the New York Times. I was just reading uh, one, one story they'd, they'd done this morning of a, of a, a, a Guatemalan family on the Greyhound bus across America and the, the nightmare of the Greyhound bus, which I certainly wasn't aware of. But apparently there was this huge flow of people across America starting at the border. And that was attractive. And that, that was, and as I say, it's affordable. So I think we do need to experiment on how, how we do this. 
And I, I come back also to something very early in, in my days of working with, uh, with Concord, where my boss said to me, he said, you know, people are saying that the, one, the material we're publishing is wonderful, but they want more analysis. And I scratched my head and I thought, this doesn't make sense because the analysis was, was in there. And he said, well, look, let's just put a subheading in there and then we'll write the analysis in one bit under the subheading. And it worked. We just compartmentalise it. So people, you've got to make life easy for people. You've got to make it attractive. And I think if you can do that, there are ways and means where you can make information attractive. What I don't like is the um, the idiot uh, approach as used by newspapers like the Daily Mail. Um, and this is just the lowest common denominator. I mean, okay, that's a market, but there is also, I think, a market above that for uh, good, objective, well-informed information. Keith Lovard, it's been uh, it's been terrific to talk to you. Uh, any final words, particularly on your marvellous future after what year did you start in journalism? Uh, 1968, I think it was. 1968, where you've gone. Ooh, it's a long time. Um, what's next? Uh, well, it's unlikely to be anything revolutionary, <laughs> anything terribly different. And not that many people want to employ a person who's 71 years old. But, uh, yeah, I still enjoy um, writing analysis and, and absorbing information to be able to write analysis so that it, it, it empowers people with, with uh, the inside story, if you like, on, on what's going on in the world. And may it continue. Keith Lovard, thank you very much. Thank you, Luke.